Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go and find yourself something awesome to listen to today. This week I'm going to recommend Mark Morris's The Norman Conquest, the story of how a bastard duke managed to conquer the most advanced kingdom in medieval Europe. Morris does a great job in this book of bringing the drama of conquest home, and as far as popular historical accounts go, it's among the best I've seen. And it's free when you sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 6, Adeliza of Louvain, the Fair Maid of Brabant. On the 25th of November, 1120, two years after the death of his wife Matilda, King Henry I and his army gathered at Barfleur in Normandy, preparing to sail for England. He had spent most of the last four years in the duchy fighting restive subjects and the French king, but finally he had won a hard-fought peace secured by the promise of marriage between his son William and the French princess Matilda, yes, another one, this time Matilda of Anjou. As he was about to embark, he was approached by a man called Thomas Fitzstephen, whose father had captained the Mora, William the Conqueror's flagship during the invasion of 1066. He offered to ferry Henry across the Channel for the maiden voyage of his own brand spanking new vessel, the White Ship. The king refused for himself, but allowed his son William to go, along with 300 other members of his retinue. These included two of his illegitimate children, the Earl of Chester, the nephew of Emperor Henry V, Count Stephen of Blois and his wife, and many other sons and daughters of his nobility. While the old people prepared to set sail with the king, the young people's boat, or party boat, as I'm sure they would have called it, settled down to a session of extreme pre-drinking. According to Orderic Fatalis, William ordered that all the casks of wine on the ship be opened, and so the alcohol flowed. Pretty soon, everyone on board the white ship was blind, stinking drunk. At this point, and crucially for the future of England, Stephen of Blois and his wife Matilda, yes, another one, got off the ship, through a combination of a bout of diarrhoea and perhaps seeing that being on board a ship crew by a load of off-their-face sailors was perhaps not the safest place to be. What with all that hard drinking, the white ship found itself being the last to leave harbour, but William wanted to get back home before his father, and ordered the ship's captain to make the oarsmen pull their hardest to get the ship to go at full speed. 
The helmsman paid little attention to where he was going, and before you could say, Iceberg ahead! A rock smashed hard into the port side of the white ship. Now there are many stories of what happened next, but legend has it that William was quickly bundled onto the ship's only lifeboat. Presumably it would have been the only lifeboat because it would have cluttered the deck to have had too many more, and was rowed away to safety. But he realised that he had left his half-sister, who, wouldn't you know, was called Matilda, back on the ship. He ordered that his boat turn around to save her, but they were quickly overwhelmed by panicking survivors. The lifeboat capsized and everyone was drowned. It is said that the captain did get away, but on seeing the king's only legitimate son drowning, allowed the sea to take him so as to avoid the king's legendary wrath. Only one person survived, a butcher from Rouen. If this all sounds very titanic, then you have the same sense as me. But in the context of the time, this was a far worse disaster. There was not one single noble family in England or Normandy that did not have a relative lost. Rich and poor died alike and everything that Henry had been working for for the last 20 years went down with the white ship. In the context of the relatively small population and even smaller ruling class of medieval England, 300 children of the high nobility constituted a huge proportion of the rich and powerful, and no one was richer or more powerful than Henry. The king was apparently the last person in the kingdom to find out. His nobles hid the grief about their loss of their children, but eventually the king had to be told. Audric Vitalis describes what happened. Quote, the magnates wept bitterly in private and mourned inconsolably for their lost kinfolk and friends, but in the king's presence they struggled to restrain their tears to avoid betraying the cause of their distress. However, on the following day, by a wise plan of Count Theobald, a boy threw himself, weeping at the king's feet, and the king learned from him that the cause of his grief was the wreck of the white ship. Immediately, Henry fell to the ground, overcome with anguish, and, after being helped to his feet by friends, gave way to bitter laments. As so great a ruler lamented, all the people of the realm could give rein to their tears, and this mourning lasted for many days. This is the only time in any of the contemporary sources that we see Henry be so overcome with emotion. The king's anguish was not just a father's grief for a dead son, though. The succession, the security of the kingdom, the continuation of the dynasty, everything had depended on William, his only legitimate son. With him lay all his hopes for the future, his entire collection of eggs placed in a ship-shaped basket. And now he was dead. There was, though, a glimmer of hope for the kingdom. Henry I holds the rather dubious distinction of having had the most illegitimate children of any English king in history. Most of these were born before his marriage to Matilda of Scotland, but a few were after. He could have had as many as 30, and so while the loss of his son was devastating, he had no reason to doubt that he could father another. To do that, of course, he would need a new wife. He had been on the hunt for a second bride since 1119, but the sinking of the white ship forced him to accelerate his plans. Born in 1105, Adeliza of Louvain, who also is sometimes called Alice of Louvain, was the daughter of Godfrey of Louvain, Longgrave of Brabant and Duke of Lotharingia. He ruled an area that includes much of modern Belgium, Netherlands and eastern France, and was a key ally of the Holy Roman Emperor. We know almost nothing about Adeliza's early life, and she appears for the first time in any record as a teenager, ready for her turn in the spotlight. Henry's only other legitimate child, Matilda, was married to the Holy Roman Emperor Henry V, and it seems that she played a big role in setting him up with Adeliza. With the King of France an almost constant adversary in Henry's reign, a strengthened alliance with the Empire would help secure the defence of Normandy and be a key counterweight to the growing strength of the French king. 
There also may have been more base reasons for the match. Adeliza would have been around 16 at the time of her marriage, and for a notoriously randy 53-year-old king, the prospect of marrying a woman named the Fair Maid of Brabant would have been most enticing. The best description that we have of her beauty comes from the contemporary chronicler Henry of Huntingdon, who included this poem in his account, quote, Why, royal Alice, does the muse to aid my song of thee refuse? What if thy radiant charms amaze, and we in awe and silence gaze, not dazzled by thy diadem and many a sparkling precious gem? We veil our sight in mute surprise, but neath the lustre of thy eyes all aids of ornament are scorned when charms are brightest unadorned. But nature stamped for her choicest grace on thy form and beaming face. Though poor my lay, yet still I crave, you'll reckon me your humblest slave. There's no doubt about it. This lady was hot. To put the age gap into perspective, Adeliza was around the same age as Henry's daughter Matilda when they married. While that all looks kind of creepy, marriages between teenage girls and old rich noble men were not uncommon, and indeed it arouses very little comment in the contemporary sources. Adeliza did not bring land with her as part of her dowry, but she did come from a noble line that, like Henry's mother, could trace its way all the way back to Charlemagne. Most importantly, though, she was of prime childbearing age, and frankly, that was her prime imperative. This is shown by how close Henry kept her throughout his reign. Both of the previous queens had spent much of their time separated from their husbands, often by the English Channel, as he dealt with the masculine business of clashing swords and separating people's heads from their necks. The reason why William the Conqueror and Henry I had felt it safe to do so was based in large part because their wives had already fulfilled their prime imperative and produced sons. The king was now in his fifties, and for the time that was pretty old. He needed not only to have a son, but also for that son to be old enough to have reached his majority when Henry died, or at the least be very close. Therefore, Adeliza has gained a reputation for being a far more passive and placid queen than her two predecessors, as she played almost no role in governing the kingdom, and certainly was never left alone when Henry went out on campaign. Her main role was in the bedchamber, not the council chamber. Unfortunately for her, for Henry, and for the kingdom, the marriage failed to produce a child, a fact that was incredibly dispiriting for the queen and king. An apparently barren queen was considered to be a pretty useless one, and it's something that Adeliza took very personally. Desperate to conceive, she wrote to the noted churchman Hildebert of Lavardin, the Archbishop of Tours. We sadly have lost much of their correspondence, but we do have one of Hildebert's replies. Quote, if it has not been granted to you from heaven that you should bear a child to the king of the English, in these, referring to the poor, you will bring forth the king of the angels with no damage to your modesty. Perhaps the Lord has closed up your womb so that you might adopt immortal offspring. It is more blessed to be fertile in spirit than the flesh. The pious model of queenship was a popular one, but one feels that this would have done little to lift the spirits of poor Adeliza. She remained childless for the rest of her reign as queen. Despite the encouragement of Hildebert, Adeliza does not seem to have had a huge interest in following the example of her predecessor with regard to religious action, at least while she wore the crown. She founded no religious houses of her own, and does not seem to have given much money or land of her own to the church. Even after it became clear that she and Henry would remain childless, she continued to play very little role in the running of the kingdom. We find her name on very few charter rolls, and almost all the ones in which she does appear are attested with Henry 
rather than her being the primary instigator and signatory. With Henry having been on the throne now for over 20 years, he had managed to build an administrative system that was probably the most advanced in all of Europe. Indeed, it is for this, more than anything else, that marks Henry out as being one of the most important and influential kings in English history. This meant, though, that there was no need for an inexperienced teenager to keep the wheels turning. They could pretty much rotate themselves. So, no children, pretty much no role in the governing of the kingdom, and no particular interest in becoming famous for her piety. It begs the question, did Adeliza do anything of note? Well, yes. Yes, she did. But it was in the somewhat secondary field of cultural patronage where she made her name. Her predecessor, Matilda of Scotland, had begun to build up a strong literary contingent in the Anglo-Norman court, and Adeliza built on this legacy. The Voyage of St Brendan, a work commissioned by Matilda of Scotland, was rededicated to Adeliza, and she personally committed an account of her husband's reign by the poet David, which would have been set to music, and the first example of a secular rhymed musical chronicle. She also had dedicated to her Philippe de Town's bestiary, the oldest surviving in French of the genre. Whilst she did not far surpass her predecessor in terms of literary patronage, she was certainly more than equal to it. Indeed, there is only one aspect in which Adeliza can be seen to have surpassed her two illustrious predecessors, longevity. In 1135, while on campaign in southern Normandy, Henry suddenly died. According to Henry of Huntingdon, the king had, against the advice of his doctors, eaten a dinner of lampreys, a kind of eel. Over the next week or so, his condition worsened, and after giving confession to Archbishop Hugh of Amiens, he died. According to William of Malmesbury, his body gave way after being, quote, much weakened by strenuous labours and family anxieties. Henry's death led to absolute chaos in the kingdom, as his daughter Matilda and nephew Stephen of Blois fought each other in a bloody civil war known to history as the Anarchy, which we'll be talking about a lot more in the next episode. Adeliza, however, played very little part in this. Upon the death of her elderly husband, she eschewed the traditional path of the widowed queen, and instead of retreating to a monastery, she decided instead to remarry. In 1138, some three years after the death of her first husband, Adeliza fell in love and married William d'Aubigny, a former member of Henry's royal household. A very minor noble, this was a pure love match, and was a far more age-appropriate partnership. Together, they resided in Arundel Castle on the Sussex coast, and, I'm sure much to her own surprise, had no fewer than seven children, four of whom were boys. Why she managed to reproduce with William and not with Henry is a complete mystery, and one that we'll never be able to resolve until we can steal that TARDIS off a certain Gallifreyan. Both Henry and Adeliza were highly fertile, and it certainly was not for want of trying that their marriage was childless. It seems that it was just not meant to be. While I'm sure Adeliza would have loved to have retreated into complete obscurity, she could not completely avoid the tumult of the anarchy. Upon her invasion of England in 1139, the Empress Matilda landed in Arundel, possibly at the invitation of Adeliza, and was received, along with 140 knights and her general, Robert of Gloucester. This would have been expressly against the wish of Adeliza's husband, who was a firm supporter of King Stephen. Adeliza seems, though, to have had maintained some affection for her former stepdaughter. It did not take long, though, for Stephen to catch up to Matilda, and before she could raise a large enough army to meet him, he besieged Arundel and fairly quickly, Adeliza surrendered. Her position as a former queen, and Arundel's status as an almost impregnable fortress, would have strengthened her bargaining position, 
but she was still very lucky to escape from this situation unpunished. Indeed, Stephen allowed Matilda to go free and for Adeliza to keep her lands. The contemporary writers, initially very positive and sympathetic towards Adeliza, are very critical of her conduct here. William of Malmesbury, a strong supporter of Matilda, pilloried Adeliza, and, using his usual PC language, describes her as using, quote, a woman's fickleness. John of Worcester's take on it was, quote, The ex-queen was awed by the king's majesty, and was afraid that she might lose what rank she had in England, and solemnly swore that no enemy of the king had come to England through her doing, but that, saving her dignity, she had provided hospitality to those in authority who are known to her. This episode is where Adeliza forever leaves the historical spotlight. Chastened by getting her fingers burnt, she retired into further obscurity and dedicated her life to the church, something that she had not done during her time as queen. She gave a lot to Waltham, Waverley and Reading Abbeys amongst others, and founded a leper hospital at Wilton. These were often made in the name of her late first husband, an attempt perhaps to remind people of her previous status. The principal beneficiary of her generosity was Reading, the burial place of Henry. She not only gave numerous financial gifts to the Abbey, but also gave the revenues of two churches in the west of England, as well as revenues of some of her own land in Staten Hardcourt. As she neared the end of her life, Adeliza retired to the monastery of Afflingen, and there she died in 1151 at the age of 47. Adeliza of Louvain is one of the forgotten queens of England, overshadowed by the reigns of all the Matildas around her, most notably her stepdaughter the Empress. She was made a queen in order to produce a son and heir for the recently sonless Henry I, but in that she was unsuccessful. This meant that she was seen by many chroniclers to have been a failure, a figure of pity. Wielding far less power than her predecessors, she is the portent of things to come, a queen whose role involved far less rulership than that of her immediate predecessors and successors. To use a contemporary example, while the Matildas around her can be compared to Hillary Clinton, strong, powerful and influential women who pursue their own goals alongside those of her husbands, Adeliza is much more of a Laura Bush, the quiet hostess who nonetheless remained highly popular, far less polarising than the far more belligerent women around her. That said, even in her own time she was seen as a bit of a footnote. References to her in the primary sources are sparse, but the final insult came in a far more prominent place. On Henry's tomb at Reading, the inscription reads, For the salvation of my soul, and that of William my father, and King William my brother, and William my son, and Queen Matilda my mother, and Queen Matilda my wife. Even on her husband's tomb, there was no place for Adeliza. Next week, we dive headlong into one of the bloodiest periods of English history, as Stephen and Matilda ding it out for who gets to wear the crown. Yet one of the most important figures in this story is often scandalously overlooked. King Stephen's wife, Matilda of Boulogne. Before I leave you for another fortnight, I would like to leave a cheeky plea. Around 70-80% to 80% of all podcast traffic goes through iTunes, and thus it is by far the most important place for a podcast to have an impact. The way to get it noticed is through reviews. The more reviews, the more views. It's that simple. Therefore, I would be incredibly grateful if you all could log on to your iTunes accounts and leave a quick review of the show there. Let's spread the word. The Queens of England deserve to have their stories told.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.